welcome to another exciting episode of the Graphite Society podcast. It is Hannah Squire here, and I'm very excited today to be joined by the legendary Pamela Gerishnum, um, whose work was really so important to me when I started studying the Pre-Raphaelites. Pamela has been writing about the Pre-Raphaelites, women artists specifically, for decades. And today, actually, we really wanted to focus our discussion around a particular artist, Eleanor Fortescue Brickdale, who Pamela wrote, did extensive research about and has written an incredible monograph um, about her work. So hello, Pamela. Hello, Hannah. Uh, thank you so much for all the way from New Zealand. So what time is it there, actually, Pamela? It's breakfast time. That's how it feels, breakfast time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for joining us early in your day. Um, yeah, it's sort of late in the evening here. So, yeah, thank you very much. Um, and I actually wanted to start by asking, um, what drew you to Brickdale um, as a focus for your uh, sort of current uh, and recent research? Well, of course, I thought you would ask me that question. And so I was racking my brains when preparing for this to try and answer that question for myself. Mm. And, you know, I can't think of any particular reason why after Jan Marsh and I had uh, achieved that exhibition of ours, the mm. pre raphaelite Women Artists exhibition in 1998, I then in particular turned to Brickdale and um, the first thing of my own that I did on her was for a conference in 2000 uh, that um, looked at the works that she had produced at the turn of the uh, century sort of um the end of the 19th beginning of the 20th on symbols of time and um so i can only suppose that after all the exciting um research and what you might call recuperation that jan marsh and i had done for the exhibition that um brickdale was one of the artists that when i looked at her i thought oh i say there's something there uh, that really needs to be looked into. There's much more there that uh, I could bring to light. So um, since then, of course, I have continued to work on her and um, she's still an artist um, who um, really remains to be fully revealed, I think, to a modern audience. Definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, and I should have actually mentioned right at the beginning that um, it was, uh, it was 1989, the publication of Women Artists in the Paraphalite Movement by yourself and Jan, which wrote a pioneering um, text about uh, women artists in the Paraphalite Movement, really groundbreaking. And uh, for people that don't know who Eleanor Forsky Brickdale was, um, Pamela, could you kind of just give us like a brief kind of um, uh, biography and just let us know a bit about her? Yes, the postage stamp version, you might say, um, is that uh, she was born in 1872 and is therefore a member of a generation that I've been particularly invested in for really some time now in my research. And that is those women who were born as Victorians, but who found as they came into their uh, adult lives that, um, hey presto, they were in the 20th century, the post-Victorian and modern era. 
and um, a number of women artists whose names we all generally know, whether or not they're associated with pre-Raphaelitism, fall into that category. And uh, so really what one's talking about with Brickdale is someone who will have grown into her apprenticeship as an artist, fully expecting that to be a pre-Raphaelite, albeit a late pre-Raphaelite, uh, was going to be something that she could sustain for whoever knew how, how long. But then finding that the modern world after the death of Victoria and the beginning of the 20th century, and then, of course, especially um, that uh, cataclysmic event, the First World War, changed things so completely. So one's looking then at a pre-Raphaelite who becomes an Edwardian artist who then has to become some kind of a a jazz age sort of artist, if you see what mm. I mean. So mm. a very, very interesting figure. She died in 1945. And um, throughout her career, and like you say, seeing those sort of seismic changes um, and the changes in um, women's emancipation during that time as well, how does her art change with the times or how do you see it sort of evolving over her career? Well, of course, that's a question that um, is always fundamental with women isn't it insofar as uh, even though they might be trying to place themselves in the art world we know that they are always as it were captive by the social world and and the the politics of the of the social world and mm. so one of the reasons why someone like Brickdale I think is so interesting is that um she clearly was a great enthusiast for pre-Raphaelitism and she, of course, is a member of a, of a, of a group of artists that, that are quite well known still who were called neo-pre-Raphaelites. It was recognised that they were looking at pre-Raphaelitism at the end of the 19th century and trying to um, keep it going, regenerate it, um, uh, reinvent it, if you like. Um, and... Um, what she managed to do was to um, establish her own take on it. She has a kind of signature style, which becomes very recognisable as soon as you get your eye in, so to speak. Mm. But um, I think that she was, she kept company with artists who were not inclined to modernise, who themselves were um, happy to keep going with something that was well established. And as far as I can tell, she had absolutely no um, interaction with the artists who became known as, as the modern artists, it, specifically, mm -hmm. let's say, to take the most obvious, obvious example, the Bloomsbury set, you know, someone say like Vanessa mm -hmm. Bell. And um, so I think she was probably very much someone who was inclined to stick to what she had made a success of reasonably early on and carry on with it as long as there was a demand for it. So, in fact, you don't see very clear um, chronologically based stylistic developments or changes in her work. She, I think, um, rather... Um, violates that kind of modernist tradition by which we see um, advancements in artists' work the longer they go on. I think she tries to keep the same thing going for as long as she finds that it's popular. And so it's not really until 
the post-war period, about 1920 on, that you can see um, a distinct change that occurs at a particular point in time. Um, and you mentioned about, as well as being part of that neo-Paraphalite group, um, sort of reinventing Paraphalitism, you mentioned her very specific signature style. So could you, I know it's a very hard question, but in a sense kind of define what makes her art very specifically Brickdale's when you come across it in comparison to maybe other of the neo-Paraphalites? Well, I wonder quite what to say to that, because um, I'm a great believer as an art historian in the power of the eye. <laughs> and mm, yes, yes. I can always see um, mm. her signature. And yet I don't know whether I could actually put it into words. Um, certainly her combination of elements, I think, is what makes her signature so that it's not so much that she does any one particular thing that no one else does. I think it's the way in which she puts together the components of the pre-Raphaelite vision or the pre-Raphaelite aesthetic. And we could perhaps say that about any of the uh, pre-Raphaelites that uh, we all know and um, uh, examine so 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 often and so um, minutely that um, that's in fact what makes a style that groups people together. They have a common repertoire, but each of them puts together the elements of the repertoire in a particular way with a particular flourish or a particular sensibility. So that with Brickdale, her her favourite elements of that repertoire would be colour minute observation and detail, um, historical, um, uh, perhaps particularly medieval, um, what used to be called Gothic, but of course I think I think um, they drop the term Gothic and prefer the term medieval as the century goes on. Um, those kinds of things and storytelling, of course, that's very important to her. So I think that's probably the best I can do to answer that question. <laughs> Thank you very much. And you mentioned storytelling, and I, I'm also really fascinated by the illustrations that um, Eleanor did for books. Particularly, I've been reading a bit more about the Golden Book of Famous Women um, recently, because I think that's a really interesting kind of her um, looking at those kind of narratives of um, those kind of women throughout history. So yeah, I wonder if you talk a bit more about her her book illustrations specifically and how they work with with the texts. Yes, and. Um... What it is with her professional activities is that um, a lot of people would know her as an illustrator, but in fact, um, she was producing works and they were usually in watercolour. She was producing the pictures in order for them to meet a commission, let's say, for an illustrated book. And yet they actually functioned in the art world as regular exhibitable watercolours. So there isn't a division between um, images of hers that were perhaps experienced as illustrations to books by most people mm. and images of hers that other people might have come across in an exhibition gallery. So specifically, uh, she might um, be commissioned for 
a certain book project, she would produce a number of watercolours, probably substantially more than were going to be in the book. She would exhibit these as one might exhibit any works of art. And, you know, you could go along to the exhibition and buy them. And then a certain number from that series or that set would appear in a book that you would then buy in a number of different editions and therefore with a number of different illustrations in. And although I'm always on the lookout for archival material that will give me more detail about this, that's to say perhaps contracts or letters between her and publishers, I'm getting the impression over the years as I accumulate more instances of these um, contracts that uh, she was generally given a free hand to determine which of the elements in a set text she might choose to illustrate. And so with the Golden Book of Famous Women, we might be able to extrapolate from that book and from the exhibition of those works the choices that she herself made. And that's very interesting, isn't it? Mm. Yes. Do you have any particular sort of favourite um, artworks that she created, Pamela? Well, let me see. I think the ones where she is trying to visualise a more contemporary figure of woman. Mm. I like I like those. But then, of course, that's in a way... Um, separate from her pre-athletism. I suppose that's why she's interesting to me, although our listeners today will primarily be interested in her as a pre-raphaelite, of course. So within her more thoroughgoing pre-raphaelitism, I think some of her very early pieces, uh, she became sort of an overnight success in 1901 when she exhibited a set of 45 watercolours at one of the London dealers, the Downswell Gallery. And um, she clearly put um, a, a huge amount of ambition into that set of work. It was going to be her big break. I think she understood that and it was. So a number of those, although they stand as relatively early works, I think are amongst her best. The invention and the ability, as Georgia O'Keeffe, another famous woman artist, used to say, to fill a space in a beautiful way. That's to say her design skill are really consummate. But I'm, in fact, still tracking down a, lo a lot of works. A lot of works have either disappeared without trace or I only know them through reproduction. And of course, you can't really judge a piece until you've seen it in the flesh. Mm. If um, our listeners want to go and see um, Brickdale's work kind of in the flesh, what what collections would you suggest um, uh, would, would be best for them to kind of go and appreciate her work physically? Well, um, she presents us with a um, an interesting and unusual uh, problem insofar as uh, traditionally and generally, the big issue with uh, women's work from the past, as you, of course, know, is actually finding it. Um, mm. And um, it's often the case that we can't find it because it's still in somebody's 
attic or you know it's um in the hands of their descendants or it hasn't survived now she was so very very successful in her lifetime that a huge amount of her work uh, is still around but i have found an extraordinary number of private collectors who have had her work for three generations still have it and that's really rather wonderful they bought it when uh, it was first made and they have treasured it ever since but it does make it a little difficult to access so in terms of the public um, visibility of her work there's um, let me see the Walker Gallery in Liverpool would be a good mm. place to go to and then one while one was in Liverpool one could go across to uh, Port Sunlight and uh, look at her painting in the Lady Lever Art Gallery. So that would be a nice day out for any pre-Raphaelite picture seekers, wouldn't it? <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, um, I want to ask you a bit more as well about her exhibiting history, because I know also she lived uh, near Leighton House. We did, we did an episode a while ago, I did, uh, talking to the curators at Leighton House, and I believe she did an exhibition of her work there in the early 20th century. In fact, she had um, quite a rich and um, varied relationship with not just the um, Leighton House itself specifically, but with that that street, that little area, that uh, enclave mm. there. Um, the studios that she had for most of her life were in that same street, just along the road from Leighton House. She had yes two no, I think um, maybe three exhibitions at Leighton House and contributed uh, to you know a number of other group shows there at one stage she was on its um, sort of committee so yes she was very much part of that particular Kensington community there that um, Leighton House now I'm glad to see is very much taking up as part of its own heritage isn't it and they have one mm. painting of hers there I think which is uh, on the wall at the moment one of the 1920s sort of uh, post pre-Raphaelite pieces. Mm. And also you, um, you mentioned earlier about her being part of that kind of neo-Pre-Raphaelite movement I wondered if um, you might be able to kind of define that group and talk about some of Wickdale's contemporaries and some of her um, peers and the artists that she was kind of and um, also most inspired by? Well, you know, I think in terms of um, the names that we know now, the most obvious one would be one that um, I have um, very mixed feelings about, and that's uh, John Byam Shaw, because, of course, mm. he was quite well known at the time, became well known before she did. And as we know, those of us who study women artists, um, there's usually some male figure um, standing mm. near to the woman who people over the years have um, grasped and sort of presented uh, as her uh, chief inspiration, her mentor, her teacher, whatever, whatever, whatever. Now, in fact, uh, in her case, she clearly did have um, a great um, affection for and admiration for by I'm sure uh, one which um, um, I feel perhaps may have helped her at the outset but became something of uh, a hindrance 
because he was, um, I think, um, someone who was rather conservative and traditionalist. He was, in fact, an anti-suffragist, which is sad to record since uh, mm. she so well of him. <laughs> um, so yes, um, he, he was the artist that she was most associated with in the public mind. And um, the others, Frank Cadogan Cooper would be another. I think he's recognised now, isn't he, in that um, little set. But um, my regret is you know, for her, so to speak, uh, is that she didn't have a greater acquaintance of artists who were more adventurous, more cosmopolitan, who would have brought um, a greater range of possibilities uh, into her reach. Um, I can't think of any other artists whose names are now known that we would associate her with. Perhaps you can um, perhaps you can remind me, um, what other neo-pre-Raphaelites come to your mind as we speak? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, that is a very good question. Well, I, I have been, um, it's actually been uh, just before, while, while I'm just my brain's just thinking a bit more about that. Um, it's been amazing the response we've actually have on our society social media to Rickdale. People really get, it's, she's one of the, favorites whenever I post you get we get incredible feedback um, uh-huh. and followers and other people alike so it's just really interesting to see the contemporary as well and um, mm. current sort of engagement with her work um, and how important it is um, yeah. definitely obviously she said by I'm sure Cowper I always think of um, John William Waterhouse as well as kind of a neo paraphalite he's another one that does incredibly well on our social media so yeah Waterhouse is somebody else who I think of Yes, um, although one one of the um, one of the dangers that always lurks for those of us who are studying pre raphaelitism now, so long after the event, mm. is that we look at the evidence and we think, oh, that looks to me like the work of a pre raphaelite and mm. of course, more and more pre raphaelitism becomes the favourite thing of um, a wide and eclectic audience that um, is full of enthusiasm, but not necessarily uh, strong in historical knowledge is that the notion of the pre-Raphaelite becomes more and more diffuse and dilute and so it's worth noting that um, uh, let's say Brickdale and Cooper and Shaw would not have thought Mm. that either um, Gotch or Waterhouse was um, endeavouring to do the same as them at all. Mm. They actually wouldn't have seen the journeys that those two artists were making as being on the same path as their own. So Mm. it's always useful, I think, to stop and think, what is it that I'm seeing in the work by X artist or Y artist that made me say pre-Raphaelite and stopping and trying to sort, sort the strands out, if you know what I mean, of what people were doing, especially in the 1890s and Edwardian period, because, of course, um, the label of pre-Raphaelite will become meaningless unless we try and uh, capture it to some extent, although, you know, one doesn't want to be too much of a a gatekeeper in that regard. But I do think we do have a useful job to do, those of us who are historians of that period, Mm. to confine it within reasonable terms so as to 
um, make sure it still has um, uh, an effective meaning, if you see what I mean. Mm. Yeah, and you've reminded me, I've often had kind of really interesting conversations with Sarah Hardy, who's the um, curator and director of the Evelyn uh, de Morgan Foundation, about Evelyn as well, and where she kind of potentially both fits into um, the Paraphylite narrative, but also is very separate from. So exactly it's, and actually I've found, um, just to go back to social media again, I found that it's really interesting, yeah, how you define Paraphylitism. And some of the artists or artworks I've posted very much seem like they could be or they couldn't. And it's sort of, yeah, how we kind of broaden both the idea of it without kind of losing the meaning of Paraphylitism uh, muddy the waters too much so it's yeah it is a really kind of interesting um and I'm so glad you brought that up because I obviously find I often find that um yeah that's a difficult one to uh to quantify um particularly when you come to second and third generations and seeing how there might be some influence there but they have in a sense either stylistically um or uh in terms of the content have um are pushing the boundaries of uh whether it's whether they are should be considered um part of that group and obviously paraphyletism is such a um kind of iconic uh name as well that um it can often be um sort of any woman that has red hair in a painting that's sort of 19th or early 20th century becomes part of that which can be yeah, yes. not great. Yes. So. And, and one of the other ways I think in which we can help ourselves in this regard is to um, think that the power of pre-raphletism was such that um, by the end of the century, many, many artists were borrowing from it, were mm. uh, perhaps even unconsciously affected by it and enriched by it. And so the only way in which we can, as it were, claim pre-raphelites uh, Pre-Raphaelitism's influence uh, and importance is not to slap the label on mm. every painter or every artist who was affected by it, but in a more subtle way to claim that its influence shows how important a movement it had been right from the middle of the century. And that um, if you can see its traces, then that's actually a much more nuanced way of proving uh, the power of it and the importance of it and significance of it in the shaping of um, Victorian and Edwardian art. Mm. And I think what you and Jan um, particularly and then other um, art historians kind of since um, have also kind of got involved in is is however broadening it out so it's not just the Paraphylite Brotherhood but actually looking at the um specifically kind of women artists who are both involved right from the start and continue to be when they've kind of been um when they were written out of the narrative and just kind of how important um women generally as muses models artists were a part of that group um, I also was thinking about paraphyletism in terms of in terms of the incredible kind of stained glass that was produced as part of the movement. And I know Brickdale also kind of created stained glass designs a bit later in her career. So I also wanted to ask you about that aspect of her work. Yes. And um, it's clear to me that from the outset, she saw herself uh, in that um, pre-Raphaelite mode of being an art worker if you like that's to say mm. uh, the production of pictures sat alongside the production of um, artistic objects and uh, you could um, be making furniture windows um, items for the home 
pictures, whatever it might be, um, because by that time, let's just say the sort of uh, late 80s and 90s, of course, um, a young artist had the example before them, not only of a pre-Raphaelite as a painter, but through the Morris and Byrne-Jones um, phenomenon, a pre-Raphaelite as a designer and an applied artist. And um, clearly um, that's what uh, Fortescue Brickdale started out willing to be, open to being, um, so that um, we find her, for instance, having uh, done designs for stained glass uh, really quite early on as sort of part of her portfolio that she would you know, present to the waiting world as she was mm -hmm. trying to make her way. Uh, she made designs for uh, Liberties, the, the famous um, London um, purveyor of uh, arts and crafts inspired items. And yes, the relationship that she had with Burleson and Grills, uh, one of the um, most busy and um, reliable and uh, distinguished uh, Victorian Edwardian glass people is a very, very long one. And um, I was really touched when I found an account of her funeral in 1945 that um, recorded that um, the current head of the Grills family attended. I thought that was really oh, wow. a great a very touching testament to that lifelong relationship of hers that, um, yes, I think was as important to her as painting in the long run. Although she was never trained to make stained glass, to work with glass, not like, say, Mary Lowndes, uh, the other, mm. the, the, perhaps the most distinguished of the female uh, glass makers that we know. But um, no, um, she was uh, clearly very invested in the medium and, and her designs um, were made over a long period of time. Hmm. And if you don't mind me asking, feel free if you don't want to answer, but your research into Brickdale at the moment, what kind of avenues is that taking? Oh, well, I'm glad to be asked because I am, in fact, trying to get up um, another exhibition of her work. The one that I Amazing. did um, up, uh, up in the Lady Lever Art Gallery was um, mm. incredibly over a decade ago. I think most of us since the lockdown period, we can't tell how long ago anything was, can we? But <laughs> I was shocked to find it was over a decade ago. So it seems to be timely uh, that um, we should have another exhibition of her work that um, uh, simply celebrates how beautiful her, uh, her pictures are, that she was a consummate uh, designer and um, painter and watercolorist who was able to create um, just the most wonderful and beautiful um, images. And I think that's what perhaps uh, the um, the Internet and social media audience for her work uh, is enjoying, isn't it? That, that um, her pictures just give such pleasure. They're, they're such well-made and wonderfully fascinating images. So that's what I'm working towards at the moment. I hope the, that I'll get um, some interest from a UK public gallery that might see an exhibition of her work maybe in 25 or 26. That is, if you like, just a celebration um, of that kind of work that we see having been inspired by pre-Raphaelitism and, and um, lasting for so long. Yeah, no, of course, that's so exciting. That would be absolutely incredible, definitely. I'll be visiting multiple times. That sounds perfect. Yeah, I <laughs> that was a decade ago because um, 
Yeah, I love the um, the the publication that you did with the exhibition, and it's called A Pyrophyllite Journey, The Art of Eleanor Fortescue Brickdale. I'd really recommend to all of our listeners. It's a really, really fascinating read. Um, but no, that would be incredible to have another exhibition. I'm sure they'll be fighting over it because I just think, yeah, she is, well, yes, deserved another exhibition as soon as possible. That would be amazing. And one of the one of the things I think why a lot of people love art from that period is that um, there are so many subsequent forms of art that make you think. But can I say make your head hurt? <laughs> and, um, <laughs> I think it's often, you can. Then <laughs> a quite understandable um, uh, relief, if you like, or antidote to that kind of work that we've that um, we've had growing more and more in the modern period to to be confronted with something that doesn't necessarily require you to do anything other than to enjoy its uh, its beauty. Um, if you want to, you can delve into the story or you know, who's the baddie and who's the goodie or the history. But actually, it does allow you, if you want, to simply take pleasure from it. I think there's a lot to be said for that kind of art. Definitely, I agree. Um, to delve, though, into the story, I just um, a final question I have is, and I think this is definitely a question that I ask of male and female artists, and I'm really kind of interested in, is how the representation of gender um, in her art or how the representation of women particularly how you would sort of define that in her work um well one of the things that she would have been very aware of is the fact of her sex so even mm. in the 20th century um women artists would have been um, obliged to think of themselves as female artists to some extent, you know, and in some circumstances more or less. And one of the things that I wonder is whether the literary sources that she worked on were to some extent a consequence of um, stereotyping. That's to say somebody thought, oh, um, wouldn't it be good to get such and such a woman to illustrate such and such an author? Mm. But when you actually examine the range of work that she did, even though we've already talked about, for instance, the Golden Book of Famous Women, that seems to sit quite um, glibly, doesn't it, into a stereotype mm. about um, women artists and their sources. But mm. at the same time, we can see that um, she was given Browning, for instance, Robert Browning, to uh, illustrate and he's a very kind of gnarly meaty um not exactly masculinist but kind of blokey sort of poet isn't he um mm. there's uh, uh, and um i've noticed going through her sketchbooks uh, things that you know are not visible were not made visible to the public that she might in fact have had quite an interest in christina rossetti so um i suppose i'm in answer to your question, um, this is one of the questions in my mind as I go on exploring her work. And um, I haven't really got any um, definite opinions or conclusions as yet. Every time I look at something, I look again to see whether it fits with any 
um, neat idea or whether in fact um, there are so many figures in her work and so many stories in her work that it would be a lifetime's job to categorize them into any way that actually made sense and wasn't just sort of facile and playing to our own uh, 21st century concerns which I think is an easy trap to fall into. Mm. Yes no definitely yeah I was yeah I was just thinking in terms of when we were talking earlier about kind of looking at defining paraphyllitism about I think sometimes there's a criticism of paraphyllite art that um, it's Victorian but the um, the inspiration is medieval without then kind of acknowledging that it was looking at contemporary social issues as well in Victorian society. And part of that is around kind of gender, but in the guise of an earlier medieval sort of setting in some way. So, yeah, I was just kind of thinking about those temporary social issues that she might have been sort of working with. But, yeah, definitely. Um, yes. Sorry. And, and just what, one, of the oh, question, sorry, one of the questions that's, that, that's difficult, of course, um, is to try and chart how artists' uh, views of the worlds that they were um, presenting to their public changed anyway, because mm. they're human beings like the rest of us, and one doesn't necessarily have the same opinion about anything at 40 as one had at 20. Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah, I was looking back at some of my teenage diaries the other day and was like, oh, my goodness. Yeah, you That's really do. Great thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> oh no it was mortifying <laughs> um, uh, sorry I said it was the last question but you mentioned sketchbooks so I'm really interested in if you could tell us a bit more about that and what you kind of gleaned about her process of creating art from them well one of the questions um, I often get asked is um, why hasn't anybody written a big book about her life and work and of course, mm. I would have written that book had it been possible. But there's a peculiar circumstance surrounding the primary materials of um, Brickdale, which means that um, the the kinds of things that you would want, like diaries, letters, sketchbooks, um, have become impossible to find. And I think they may never be found. And so one of the most valuable things that I have got in terms of materials is the um, uh, a, a look at a few of her sketchbooks. And yes, um, they are very revealing of um, always, of course, of ideas that an artist has that don't make it uh, past the drawing board, that don't make it to the exhibition room, ideas uh, that um, might actually change your understanding of um, their kind of mental furniture, you know, because they remained uh, in sketchbook form and they never actually um, were acted upon. Um, there's, for instance, um, an entire set of um, sketches I've noticed for a project that I just cannot find in her um, actual um, uh, sort of career uh, production. So that must have been um, something speculative or maybe the commission fell through. Similarly, um, I was just reading a letter the other day, a series of letters between her um, and a publisher. She says, oh, yes, I'd like to do this work. That's a great uh, project. She produces the uh, the work. Then at the end of the year, the publisher says, oh, sorry, we don't think the market um, for that has held up. We won't be doing it. And then, in fact, only about five years later, do we find the fruit of that 
that, that those, those sketches in some later work. So it, it is a fascinating area of primary research and one that um, uh, is, uh, in her case, uh, all too fragmentary. Mm. Thank you so much. This conversation has been so enlightening and I think um, just really brilliant um, for, our, I was about to say viewers, but they're not viewers, listeners to be able to <laughs> have insight into. Thank you so much for taking the time, Pamela. Is there any questions or areas I haven't asked you about that you particularly wanted to, to talk about that we haven't touched on yet? Oh, no, no. Thank you very much for for hosting me and giving me the op this opportunity to talk about one of my favourite subjects. I mean, um, I think it's great that um, you're doing these podcasts, Hannah, and um, not only delving into already uh, known areas about pre-raphletism, but um, broadening uh, the topic out into to different highways and byways. So thank you very much for the opportunity. Oh no, thank you. It's been just so wonderful to talk to you. And I think my undergraduate um, art historian self would not have ever thought that I'd be kind of having a conversation with you. So thank you so much um, to Pamela Gerishnan, who is a writer, art historian and legendary curator, particularly in the Paraphalite sphere, but generally around um, really championing and researching women artists um, and from the 1980s. And I can't believe you've been working on Brickdale since 2000. That's incredible. That's a great commitment uh, to Brickdale's work and really kind of shows um, the enthusiasm and um, kind of insight into her as an artist. And we, I look forward to this exhibition. Tell us immediately and I'll put it all over social media and I'm sure our listeners will be incredibly excited to come along. Um, yeah, so thank you so much uh, for this, Pamela. You're welcome anytime on the podcast. Any, any other artists you want to talk about or anything, that would be great. Thank you. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye.